Bibles to the book of Luke chapter 24. The book of Luke chapter 24. Excuse me a second, I got to get command center set up here. Uh, always feels a little strange when you got two different iPads going on here, but uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you now for this opportunity to come to you to know more about you. We thank you that you are the God who has revealed yourself to us through your word. So, Father, in your mercy and grace, give us eyes to see and let us see you. Let us see your glory. Let us see your wonder. May that fill us with awe this morning. And Lord, just take your word, your truth, the revelation of who you are, that it would pass into our minds and our brains and that we would see the reality of that, which what reality is of who you are, that we would not therefore be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind, that as you renew our mind, you would be moving into our heart, changing our very affections and that which we love, and that would overflow into the way we live, into the shape of reality of who you are, and the way that we love you and we love our neighbor. And I pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. So, it's interesting to kind of call kind of reality a little bit to what it is. And I kind of expected this. I, we've been having such increased attendance over and over, and I kind of anticipated that as we began a mission month, there would be a little bit of a lull in that growth and that attendance, that there's kind of that expectation. And I think a lot of it is, comes back to a lot of what we expect when we come to hear a missions conference or we come to hear a missions month or we know that we're going to be emphasizing mission. Right now, just so if you're new uh, here to us, this is this isn't what we normally do. What we are typically do is we work through a book of the Bible. That's kind of what we have done. And so we spent um, nine months working through the book of First Samuel, and we ended that last week. But I think one of the reasons that we've come to anticipate or come to expect. Uh, in missions conferences or missions month, whenever we highlight missions, there are a couple of what I'm going to call false assumptions. A couple of attitudes that I think if we can flip them on their head, we can see missions in a whole new light and they become something that energizes us, something that refreshes us, something that excites us, rather than something that paralyzes us with guilt or shame or obligation. And so the two uh, that I think that we often deal with when we think of missions is a lot of times that as we come in, one of the first things that we're going to get and receive is a whole lot of guilt. We're going to get a whole lot of pressure. We're going to have somebody come in and waving, waving our little finger at you saying, why aren't you sharing the gospel more often? Why aren't you doing this? And it becomes because this, this sense in which we look at the way... Um, our life is living with God, there's theology or there's Bible knowledge, which is about God, and it's about learning about Him, but then there's mission, which is about what we do. So in other words, there's this sense in which mission is really our response. 
It's in, in the sense of what mission is, is something that's really kind of all about us. God sometimes, a lot of times what is presented to us in this realm is God kind of needs us. You know who God is. Well, the reason the world's so bad is because you as a Christian is not going out and doing everything you need to do. And so what comes around us is this tremendous weight, this tremendous guilt. Now, on a short term, this can really kind of mobilize us. We can, we can look and say, hey, you know what? I do need to go out and share the gospel. I do need to share the gospel. I need to, do need to support a missionary. But a lot of times what we have found is those are often short-lived. We don't actually capture a heart for missions. We're just trying to deal with a pang of guilt that we felt in that moment. And so another thing that we often, another idea and concept that we often deal with when we think of missions or we're going to be talking about missions or we're going to have a mission month is almost like the circus is coming to town. There's something exotic about it. There's something and, you know, we're going to be looking at something almost like they're bringing in the elephants and the camels. And there's something very foreign to it within there. Right. And so what kind of underlies behind that kind of misconception is that mission is something that is kind of a, a compartment. It is a a we look at it and we say, well, what are we going to preach? on? Oh, of course, we're going to preach on the great commandment. And so we look at it as missions is going to be something that is a commandment that we do is just one single aspect of the Christian life. It is a checkbox or a, something on our to-do list that is just one part of our faith in what does it mean to be a Christian. And so this is just kind of like as we look at it, it's like, oh, look, these are the people that this is their life. This is what they do. They are missionaries in, in uh, Southeast Asia. Oh, they, they must have really cool... Look, I mean, Dan was wearing this really nice little shirt. Oh, man, I, maybe I can get him to get me a shirt the next time he comes back in like that. That's pretty cool. That's exciting. It's exotic. Maybe we'll show, see pictures of people from lands we don't know. But the underlying concept behind that is mission is something that is somewhat of a compartment, is a department, is something that is on the side and everything else we, else we do is something other than mission. But I want to challenge both of these preconceptions that we look at this morning. And to do so, I want us to look at a passage in Luke. A passage in Luke, chapter 24, uh, in verses 44 through 49. Now, we're going to be somewhat all over the place um, in this. But I want us to begin, and let me tell the context. Of course, this is the final chapter in the Gospel of Luke. And so at this point, Jesus, our Lord and Savior, has, has died and has been risen from the dead. And so what we see, he's already revealed himself to two disciples who were on their way to Emmaus. And in revealing to these two disciples, he showed them, and he opened their minds, he began to teach them how all of the Old Testament writings, the law and the prophets, had pointed to Jesus Christ. And then he, in the midst of a meal, revealed himself who he was, that he was the risen Lord in their midst. And then he disappears. He goes away. These two disciples then go back to Jerusalem and begin sharing that they had seen the risen Lord and find out that others 
uh, had seen him as well. And so in this context, Jesus reveals himself in their midst. He once again appears in their midst. And uh, they're, all, they're all a little alarmed. And so he, he, he demonstrates that he is not a ghost. He eats meal. He is, in fact, the bodily risen Savior. And then he goes on to tell them in Luke chapter 24, verse 44... He says this, Then he said to them, These are the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. They opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that... Listen, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Now, as I begin here, I should say I want to give credit where credit due. I am very much leaning on the work of Christopher Wright in his book, The Mission of God. So everything I'm saying, footnotes everywhere, this, I have no original ideas. This is all really coming from him. I want to give that disclaimer, but I think it is an important message that really needs to be made. And what we see here in this passage in Luke 24 is this. Once again, just as he had done with the people there's two disciples in Emmaus, he points and he goes back. He doesn't just say, look, I validated myself as the Messiah in the death and resurrection, which of course he does. But even before that, he goes on to say, everything that has happened has been foretold. And he goes to show them how all of the revelation of the Old Testament is pointed to what God is doing. And he goes even a step farther. He goes on to say here in chapter with the, all of the disciples present, not only that is he opened their minds to understand scriptures, which of course at that time was the Old Testament, and not only that, that the Messiah should die and rise again, but it is for the repentance of sins, but that it should be proclaimed to all nations, to all nations. You see, what we see here is the very clear idea that missions is not something that all of a sudden spurted up with the resurrection. It is not something that, that began in the mind of the disciples and saying, hey, Jesus just rose from again from the dead. I think we should tell somebody from that. But rather, missions in and of itself finds its heart, its ontology, in the very heart and the purposes of God himself. Something that goes all the way back and is foretold and is part of the heartbeat and the rhythm of all of scriptures. It doesn't begin in Acts. It doesn't begin in the New Testament Gospels. But from the very first pages of scripture, what we see is a God who desires to make himself known. Which is ultimately what missions is about. It is a God that seeks to make himself known. Well, what does that mean? Well, what that means, first and foremost, is that mission is not about us. 
Missions is not about us. You see, when we make it about us, it becomes about this guilt trip. It becomes about this, okay, God this did, for you, did this for you. Do you deserve it? Are you going to do this? Are you going to repay him? It becomes an overwhelming aspect of shame. But when we really look and understand missions, we see within it that missions finds its heart, it finds its drumbeat in the fact that the living God himself is a missional God. And so what we see, we see that in this passage there in Luke. All of Scripture has been given to us, has been pointing out that what God is doing is he is revealing himself to a world that is in open rebellion to him. And so if we were to look at the overall framework of Scripture, you could break it down in this fourfold movement of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. In creation, which we see in the opening pages, a God who wills to make himself known in creation. He, all that is is created by him, and he wills to have this people that he has made in, the, in, in his image who will know him that will be, in essence, his icons here in this world. To know and love him. And of course, we see in the fall that these icons of God who are meant to know him and love him and be in this perfect relationship, they, in, they listen to the snake, they listen to uh, this, the accuser, the Satan, and they openly rebelled against God. And in doing so, they brought into this world a world of death, a world that has fallen, a world that is broken. But yet, as we continue on, we see that despite the fact that this humanity has chosen to turn its back on God and not know God and hide from God, we see right in the opening pages a God who seeks us out. And so in the first pages of Genesis, even though Adam and Eve, as God was walking in the garden, they decided to hide from God, God called them out to come before him. We see a God who will not be satisfied in letting us hide from him, but rather a God who in his grace and in his mercy desires to make the magnitude and the wonder and the splendor of all that he is known to this people. And the rest of scripture we see is him revealing himself to us. In fact, one of the most important missional statements in all of scripture, I'd even argue, even comes in that book of Genesis to Abraham. Abraham is not someone who sought after God. He's not someone who went on some sort of pilgrimage to find God, but rather one who God called him out of his life in polytheism, his paganism. He called him out of his people to bring him into a new country. And in that process, what he did is he gave them a, he, he formed a covenant with Abraham, which said, through you, Abraham, I'm going to bless all the nations of the world. In other words, right away, God is sharing what he is going to do, that he is going to be this missional God revealing himself. As we continue to go on, in, uh, in, in the stories of Scripture, what he, we find is a God who reveals himself. His people, his chosen people, the children of Abraham, were enslaved in Egypt, right? And so though they were completely enslaved for 400 years, God comes in 
And he rescues them. He saves them completely and utterly by his might and his power. He doesn't just give somebody say, okay, I'm going to teach you guys how to have a rebellion. But rather, he comes in and he confronts the Pharaoh. He confronts the greatest power of that day. And then in the plagues, what he does is he's not just in the plagues of Egypt, which sometimes we look and they get so progressively difficult. We can look and say, okay, well, this is God just kind of turning up the heat a little bit here and a little bit there until they finally say, uncle, but that's not what's going on. In the plagues of Egypt, we see God at war. We see a God who is confronting the idols of that day, the, the false idols, the false gods of that day in Egypt. He is doing nothing less than the proclaiming that he and he alone is God. He and he alone is the sovereign over all of the universe. There is no power that is his equal or his match. All of life, and though the, the Egyptians thought that they were something and the Pharaoh thought they were something, they are nothing compared to the living God. And through that, the living God, quite apart from any human intervention, makes his power and his might known. But in doing so, he creates within his people an identity. And so he goes on and he removes them and he takes them out of Egypt. But that act of salvation, that act of revelation of who God is becomes the basis of their entire identity. So as he forms them into this covenant community, and we sometimes we look at God forming the covenant communities and we can get through the laws of, you know, uh, of this and that that you see in Leviticus, but it's all what it is, is it's forming a community that is a story community to retell of who God is, that God has revealed himself to the people of Israel. And so even in, in one of the, the most famous uh, passages of Scripture, the Ten Commandments, right? And a lot of us, we can think, oh, wow, we, we know the Ten Commandments. Don't lie, don't steal. But yet, how does the Ten Commandments begin? It begins with the story and the reminder of who their identity is. I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. So in other words, all of their identity as a community is found upon the reality that God has revealed himself to them. And as God continues on in the Old Testament, so often he is confronting and revealing himself as, as the people are often swayed and want to follow false idols and false gods of the Canaanites. He reveals himself that he and he alone is the one true God. And then what we find is ultimately in the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 1, we see this, this God who longs to be known and, be, and, and uh, make himself known long ago. And at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance and the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. You see, what God, this God who wills to be known, will to make himself known in the person of Jesus Christ so that all would know him through Jesus. 
This is not an act that, that humanity brought about, but an act that God himself did. And so what we see in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, that in the midst of the darkness of this world, the light came and tabernacled among us. This is an act of God's grace and mercy to reveal himself to us. We'll talk about this later on in the series. A key note, a key part of Jesus' own identity is as the sent one, the one who is sent of the Father. And so we go back to Luke. What we see is Luke is saying, I am part, I'm not something new, but rather I am the telos, I am the the planned purpose of what God has been doing from the beginning. And as we continue on in the church, we see that God is the one who is making himself known, ultimately bringing us to the climax in the book of Revelation as he makes all of the cosmos bow before him as a work of what he is doing in judgment and restoration for his people. Mission, folks, what we want to really get down to it, it's not about us, but rather it is about the God who wills to make himself known. Even the Bible itself, we could say, is a missional product. Again, Christopher Wright, who I already mentioned I'm pulling most of this from, made the argument, we don't go in the Bible and looking for missional proof texts a biblical mandate of Scripture, but understand that the Bible itself is a mission. It is part of what God is doing to make himself known as we look at Scripture within there. Now, you might say, okay, well, that's, that's interesting, but how does this change? How does this change our basic assumptions when we come in and understand and we look at this mission, which seems so overwhelming and can, can produce such shame within us. Well, one of the first things that this reminds us when we really kind of put the emphasis on the right syllable and understand that mission isn't about us, it's about God. One of the first things that we can understand then, and if this is about a God who is himself missional, who is himself revealing himself, mission is about the person of God not winning arguments or trophies. You see, I have certain theories and ideas of the way government should work. Some of them are very much tied to my faith. So, for example, I'm strongly against abortion. So I vote against all abortion policies within there. But there's other things, you know, various economic theories that, that I actually believe, and I have some strong beliefs within them that doesn't necessarily have a tight theological basis within that. And so if I'm going to talk to you or try to convince you about my theories of maybe economics or, or something along that line, what you and I are discussing is an idea. And to do so, I'm going to do so from a sense of argument to try to persuade you that I understand the true reality of what it is. But if we understand what Christianity is, it's not about us. It's about the living God who wills to make himself known. It's about the reality that God himself is the one active making himself known. He isn't dependent upon us, the strengths of our arguments, nor is when somebody comes to know the living God, can we look back and say, well, look at me. I just argued this so well. Because for one thing, that turns that person not into a brother and sister in Christ, but a trophy for us to display. 
but rather is an acknowledgement that the living God who makes himself known isn't an idea or a concept that is abstract for us to convince somebody in, as we would our political theories, but it is rather, it is the living God who is personable, who is knowable, is introducing and referring to a living God who is there. Now, the second reality is if God, if missions finds itself in the heart of who God is, we don't have the burden to try to say, well, let me think of what I need to be doing for God, but rather we need to be looking for what God is already doing in this world. God is the one who is already at work. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. Yes, in missions, there's a great deal of innovation. For example, what the... What the um, Dan and Rachel were talking about the importance of um, not just giving people Scripture, but understanding we need to help people engage in Scripture. There's certain innovation and movement within there, right? But as we do so, we understand that God doesn't need us. You know, so often we come into the missions with this sense of crushing guilt and shame of, well, you know, God would love to have this people group, but you're just not doing your part, and so God needs you. God doesn't need you. We get the opportunity to be part of what God is doing. And if God is the one doing it, that means he gets to dictate how the resources and the person, personnel come about. He's not about you trying to find different trophies for you to present to make your identity about yourself and let, see, God, look what I did for you, but rather as you turning to God saying, God, what have you called me to do? You're already at work in this mission and living in this reality that uh, that's who you are. And so as we look at the world around us and what's going on, it begins to give us eyes to see not a distant abstract principle of Christianity and of a God who is out there, but rather a roaring lion who is at work in this world. And we begin to ask ourselves, God, where are you at work in my life? Where are you calling me with my family, with my neighbors, with my work within there? It's not looking for trophies, but it's looking for a completely different way of life. Thirdly, if this is the mission of God, when that, what that does and what that calls us to do is to deeply fight against the deep cynicism that has a stranglehold onto our life, into our worldview, in our current 2023. It's interesting, as much as so much of our culture wants to build itself around this humanistic progressivism, in which humanity is just going to continue to progress and, to, and evolve into this greatness, the reality behind the scenes is we have a world that is deeply depressed, discouraged, and ultimately cynical. Very, very cynical. And it's easy for us to embrace that cynicism and that reality. And when we embrace that cynicism and reality, we become bunkers. We become people that just want to hold on to what we have and we want to hide but if we turn our ideas and our hopes and our wonders to a God himself who is on mission, that means he is not at all handcuffed 
but rather he is the God who has been storming into this world. And just as he defeated the powers of Pharaoh, demonstrating that they are not his equal, so too is the idols of our age not equal to the power of the living God. And so we can look at this world, and if we begin to see it with eyes to see and not be saturated with the cynicism of this world, we can see those glimpses, those punctuations of God at work in his grace and in his mercy. Understanding that the mission is about God and it's not about us, what that means is we viciously fight against the cynicism of our age. There's this wonderful passage in The Lord of the Rings. And in The Lord of the Rings, it's, it's actually in the third book um, within there. Um, there's this point in which the, the, the monster, Sam, believes the, the second uh, hobbit believes has killed Frodo, the ring bearer. And of course, they're on this journey to have the ring destroyed. And there are these two insignificant hobbits in the midst of the most evil and desolate place on the planet, right? And the key person who seems to have been chosen as the ring bearer is now believed to be dead. And so Sam, this ever-faithful Sam, has always been nothing but just kind of a sidekick, really. At least that's the way it looks. Although Tolkien himself went back to say that Sam is actually the hero of the story. But Sam takes the ring and he puts it on. And like all other people, the ring tempts him into, in, uh, to, to use the power of the ring, right? And what is Sam's temptations? It is his temptations is to take the power of the ring and marshal all the forces of good and to rally them against the forces of evil. And how does Sam fight that temptation? Because he fights it by step by saying, and saying, no. I'm just a gardener. I'm just a gardener. I'm a hobbit gardener. I'm just called to be faithful to who I am. When mission becomes about us, it's easy to grow into cynicism and in the cynicism to try to fight it with the power and the ways of this world. But when it becomes about God, we're able to embrace our humble stations of whatever God has called us to do to be part of it, maybe as giving, maybe as praying, Maybe it's training up children who love and value missions within there. And we see that whatever it is he has called us to do as important because it's not about us. It's about God. It's about what he's doing. And so we don't value our participation in missions by the trophies we can declare, but rather by are we living our reality in the basis of who God is as a God who reveals himself in mission? So that's the first point that we look at. Hmm, I thought this was going to be a short sermon. <laughs> Secondly, this will go a whole lot faster, don't worry. Mission is not a subcategory. Mission is not a subcategory. See, and again, this is Christopher Wright. He makes this point 
So often we look at, if we're going to do theology, theology is about God, mission becomes this thing that's about us, and so we, we see everything kind of dissected and pulled apart, and this is your mission category, and this is your theology and knowledge category, this is your sanctification category within there. But if God himself, at his very heart, is a God who is a God who is missional, what that turns on his head is this sense that mission is just simply one command that we do. Well, if commission is just one command we do, we look and say, well, is this just a box that we've checked off? Or is this just a command? It's like, look, I'm not going to be able to do all the commands of Scripture, so you know what? Let me just put that to the side. But as we understand a God who is on mission, we begin to look and see that everything itself has a telos. It has a purpose to it. And so we begin to look at that and we say, okay, we don't look necessarily then for proof texts to say what do we need to do, but we look and understand that the world itself to understand who God is, is to see the reality of what is going on in this world is a God who is in mission and taking his place. And as he is a God who is on mission, he has formed us to be a people who are a storied people. Okay, now let me break that down. What do I mean by that a little bit? When you look back at the Old Testament, right? As God forms the nation of Israel, he forms them to be a people who are a storied people, as they live their life of worship. So, for example, what is one of their key aspects of worship? Observing the Passover meal. Their key identity as a culture revolves around retelling the story of what God has done in delivering them and forming them into a people. They are an incredibly storied people, and that story that they do in their worship becomes their understanding of the reality that's going on around them. As a New Testament covenant people, God has continued to call us to be a storied people that finds its identity in the salvation and the works of Jesus Christ. So everything we do in finding our identity finds its identity not in who we are necessarily as a people that meet at 3402 West Interstate I-20, but a people who have been gathered and saved and redeemed by the living God. And so our worship revolves around telling and finding our identity and a reality in that story. So this morning, what have we done? We have sung of the saving works of God. We have gone to the scripture to hear of his word, of what he has done. And how we will end the service is in communion, the great celebration and identity marker of the church. It's a reminder that all we do as a people is lived in that reality. Well, okay, so what's the big deal with that? Well, what does that mean? That means we don't approach mission as a check in the box but rather is part of our identity. And so that means as part of our identity, if the things that we are doing in our worship, in our study of God and study of Scripture, 
does not challenge us to live a different life in light of the story that we say is our identity that has saved us, that Jesus Christ has made, or God has made himself known in the person of Jesus Christ, his eternally begotten Son of God, who died on the cross, taking the wrath for our sins and rose again from the dead. That our entire identity, that we are people that have been gathered, that have been indwelled through his Spirit, And we have an ultimate hope that comes from him coming again and making all things new, that nothing will separate us from the love of God. If that does not stir us to have a different reality of life that we live rather than just simply abstract knowledge of, okay, I can tell you what Matthew 28 says, I can quote to you the Great Commission, I can give you all kinds of Bible knowledge, then there is something that has become divorced and wrong in our very sense of identity. It all comes back to us living in a different reality as we understand who God is and what he has done. And that means that we seek to have everything we do then, regardless of whether it is under the category of missions, to be ultimately about making God known, making God revealed, living out the story and proclaiming it. This comes to the way we raise our kids, the way we do our work, the way we... uh, use our possessions and our resources? Do they testify to the reality in which we claim forms our very identity as a people group? So that brings us to the final application. If this is about God and about us, what we are called to do is to be a people in all that we do to tell the story of God. To truly seek and say, are we wrapping our identity in the living God who has made himself known in Jesus Christ? This becomes to us in the reality of the way we worship, the reality of how we value the importance of being gathered as a people, of how we, we live together as a family unit in our own homes. Become a people that is shaped by this identity, by this story of who God is. And then to go about and tell that story, to make that story known into a world that is cynical and broken within there. We have an opportunity today. Now, we're going to talk throughout this month a lot of different ways that we can continue and we can apply this reality. But it begins with this. It's about God, it's not about us. It's about God, it's not about us. And so we're gonna begin and we're gonna tell the story now as a community of faith as we observe communion. We're gonna come in and we're gonna tactically observe that our hope, our identity that we have been found is found in the person of Jesus Christ. So as we take the body of Christ in us, as we take the cup, which is the representative of his blood shed for us, we tell the story of God who has made himself known. We proclaim it, 
And we proclaim it as we are satisfied in it, as we trust in it. Thank you.